This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to the Faith 2020 Podcast, helping you see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. Now here's your host, Michael Ware. Hello, this is the Faith 2020 Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Ware, here for another uh, episode. have a great guest for you this week, James Mumford. James is a scholar, a journalist, has a new book out called Vexed, uh, and interested in telling you more about him it's going to be, I think, a helpful episode that gives some good sort of intellectual infrastructure uh, to support us uh, as we head towards a general election. And also, James is writing and think about issues that are really close to the heart of many of you who are listening. Um, and so I know that you'll appreciate uh, James and what he has to share with us. It's been an interesting couple of weeks uh, in the 2020 race. Let's just run through some of the developments. Uh, um, the, the vice president, uh, former vice president Biden's uh, running mate search, uh, like we discussed in the last episode, the uh, vetting committee is set up, and we're seeing, uh, I, you know, both as, you know, it's hard to. Hard to distinguish which are purely attempts to to get free media based on speculation and which are actual vetting opportunities. But uh, uh, Joe Biden's been doing uh, quite a few events, fundraisers, uh, etc., with potential female running mates from Stacey Abrams to Amy Klobuchar to Kamala Harris to Governor Whitmer. And so that's an interesting dynamic to see play out, but wisely they're also, I think, doing this not just to, you know, test the chemistry, see, uh, see kind of if, you know, if they're a good match, but also because it's a great way to get press. Uh, it's a great way to get people to tune in. The second interesting piece of what has happened over the last couple of weeks is increased reporting that Vice President Biden has changed his perspective on the race and on what's needed in response to coronavirus. New York Magazine came out with an article that suggested the Democratic nominee is now looking towards a uh, FDR-sized presidency and that more robust sort of economic intervention is going to be needed. And, you know, I think it's important. We're, We're seeing again, and this is a theme, all moves to the left are not equal. They don't all have the same political electoral implications. And so, you know, I've seen a lot of commentary, some of which I share, that, I mean, let me tell you what I do share and what I don't. What I do think is this season of working on bringing the party together can't be the focus until the convention. We can't be focused internally just bringing the party together and then have, you know, 12 weeks, 10 weeks to actually run a general election campaign and to reach out to people who aren't identifying as Democrats. Strategically, I've been okay with 
setting up these uh, policy working groups and speaking to, to Democrats and to the left and trying to show the progressive wing of the party that Joe Biden is going to listen to them. I think that's important. On the other hand, that was what the entire Democratic primary was about. Like, like we've had a year and a half of that. The Democratic Party is almost nothing but these candidates running around and doing the gauntlet of activist groups. And like Joe Biden won that. <laughs> and so that's where I think the criticism has, has a bit of merit, which is the idea that he won as a moderate doesn't make a whole lot of sense to, as you move into a general move even further to the left. Where I disagree is, again, this idea any move to the left is the same as any other move to the left. An economic move to the left, which folks will remember, the Obama re-election campaign made a significant move to a, a more populist economic uh, message and, and emphasis in 2012. An economic move to the left has different electoral implications, has, has different coalitional implications than a move to the left on everything. And so we should be reporting on this as an economic move to the left. I have yet to see signs that Joe Biden has moved any further to the left on social issues, particularly issues traditionally associated with sort of religious outreach. We just haven't seen that yet. Maybe we will. Um, I think that would be a mistake. Um, I, I think the, the primary pulled him to the left more than it was helpful. We did see the Democratic nominee roll out uh, a plan for Black America as he's been rolling out plans for other communities. And there's a lot in there. It'll be interesting to see what sort of prioritization he gives to the myriad of sort of policy items uh, there. So that is an emphasis of maybe a different kind. But let's use a, a bit more fine-grained analysis than just uh, move to the left. I think that the conversation and needs in this country have moved to the left economically. When you have a Republican president and Republicans in Congress signing up for massive unemployment benefits, significant unemployment benefits, uh, and direct payments to workers, yeah, that suggests these times are, are a bit different, might require something a bit different. The, the last thing I, I'd say is, with one or two exceptions, the polling that has come out continues to show former Vice President Biden in a, in a strong position, both at the state level and obviously national polls, which will, you know, I think are, are helpful in some ways, but obviously we're paying more uh, as this race goes on. We'll pay closer and closer attention to, to state polls. Uh, and so I think Trump's going to be getting more desperate. And, you know, we're, we're seeing that already. Jared Kushner sort of floating out there, the idea that the election when it happen. President Trump and Senator McConnell uh, suggesting bringing President Obama sort of back into this and suggesting uh, he needed to be called in for hearings. Uh, I, I have to say in a sick kind of way, I almost uh, made me feel a little nostalgic to see Mitch McConnell blaming President Obama for, for things. Uh, and, and so we're seeing that political card getting played already. Uh, I think th there's been some wise reporting that has suggested that uh, this was Senator McConnell's attempt to offer some disincentives for President Obama getting involved in this presidential election in a critical way and 
gotta say, I don't think Senator McConnell is, is going to be scaring President Obama away from, from this one too much. And so those are some updates. That's where the race kind of is right now. And, uh, you know, we're in, a, we're in a critical season right now. I do think the Biden campaign is probably eager to turn towards broader outreach while it clearly valuing this season to bring the party together so that Democrats can head into the summer on strong footing. Uh, the Trump campaign, uh, you know, I think has shown signs of picking up operationally, even if the fundamentals of this race aren't in their favor. We're in such a disruptive time, much like 2016, where things can change here. So uh, I'd caution anybody who thinks that uh, this race isn't going to have some twists and turns in it. All right, when I get back, I'm going to introduce our guest for this episode, uh, James Mumford. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast, and I'm excited to have on uh, James Mumford. James is a British author and journalist. He currently lives uh, in London, but has spent many years in America, most recently in Charlottesville, Virginia, where he spent time at UVA. His book, Vexed, Ethics Beyond Political Tribes, uh, came out in uh, March 2020 in the UK, is out in May in the United States. Uh, James writes on a range of subjects, ethical, political, literary, for uh, publications on both sides of the Atlantic, like The Guardian, The Times, The Spectator, The Atlantic, The Daily Telegraph, Unheard, The American Conservative, and The Hedgehog Review, a a, a favorite. Uh, From 2013 to 2017, Mumford worked and taught at UVA, where he remains a fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture. He was an undergraduate at Oxford, a Henry Fellow at at Yale University, and received his uh, DPhil back at Oxford in 2011. I think you'll enjoy this conversation with James about uh, package ethics, and we'll get into what that is and uh, how this all applies to 2020 and American presidential politics. Uh, Folks, enjoy the conversation with James Mumford. Well, James, welcome to the Faith 2020 podcast. So great to have you on. Oh, it's wonderful to to be on it. Thank you. Well, I'd just love to open up. I've been looking to have you on the podcast for a while, especially when I learned that your book was coming out. Uh, tell folks a little bit about your work. Uh, we'll talk about the book later, but just tell people about sort of how you got involved in thinking about politics. Yes, sure. Um, I suppose it started when I was a graduate student in America at Yale, um, and I did a political philosophy class, which intrigued me and infuriated me in equal measure. And I was sort of taught different things there by um, a very brilliant professor that I instinctively didn't like, but uh, <laughs> didn't know how to um, argue against. And that began mm. a, a process of wanting to stay in in academia to to do a PhD, uh, which I did back in Oxford, and then to go on to um, work at the University of Virginia, um, where I've been from from 2013 to 2017, and was very much interested in uh, the interface of moral questions with um, political ones. And 
I now live in um, back in the UK okay. and uh, have jumped out of academia to be a writer, um, mainly because I feel that lots of academics uh, don't always manage to uh, pare down their material so that it can be digested by a normal, intelligent, but um, not specialized um, person. And that's that's what I'm trying to do with my work at the moment and being a writer. Yeah, that, that, that's wonderful. And you've in March, you came out with this book, Vexed. And uh, tell people uh, tell people about uh, the, the book. Well, what's what's your aim here with this project? Yeah, so the book um, was written when I was in Charlottesville and encountered polarization. And the book tries to um, tackle political polarization by rejecting the political tribalism that sees us packaging moral questions into bundles, into package deals, I call them. Um, So I might be um, on the left and care deeply about the environment and I'm for affirmative action and I might inherit because of the way moral issues have been bundled together a view about say why it would be sensible to legalize assisted suicide or on the right I might have you know similar views uh, a different set of views that make me inherit a, a different set of positions and so I was really interested in kind of pulling apart um, those packages and rethinking some of these crux, what uh, President Obama called live rail moral issues on their own terms. And, and that's what I tried to do in the book in, in successive chapters, three looking at package deals on the left, three chapters looking at package deals on the right. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating book. And I, I know as you were Talking about it, many of my listeners, their, their ears perked up because we talk about these kinds of dynamics all the time, both here on this podcast, uh, through the AND campaign uh, organization uh, I'm affiliated with. Uh, and it's it's why I wanted to bring you on. We're um, in, in, in the U.S., this is, I think, uh, pressing in... A, a number of ways. I, I'm, I'm interested in your view of how the two-party system plays into this, or do you think that this is sort of a transatlantic issue? Does it does does uh, a multi-party system really alleviate some of uh, some of this, or or uh, is this just the way our politics is working right now? It's a great question, and it's funny because, you know, I saw it as a, um, you know, I saw the platonic form of it as I thought in America when I was living in in Charlottesville and (laughs) and uh, and seeing, you know, dinner parties where there wasn't any discussion because no one from the other side of the aisle had been invited, uh, churches that were split down the middle, um, and uh, and. And in my university, faculty members who, because they were on the other side of the political aisle, were ostracized and and mocked. And so when I got on the plane uh, in 2017 to come home to Britain, I thought, you know, oh, gosh, this will be a little bit of a relief. But, you know, when I came home, we we just had this referendum and it had spilt out into exactly the same kind of polarizing dynamics, even though. Um, we have, uh, you know, it, it's not as rigid a political system in terms of us having more parties. 
um, we all of these same social effects of polarization were there. Families that were, you know, not talking to each other, um, people being defined and pigeonholed on whole host of what they're supposed to think about different issues just because of whether they thought they were for Brexit or against Brexit. And so I think that was a real wake up call. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. As uh, voters uh, in America approach this presidential election and particularly among conservative to moderate evangelical and Catholic sort of circles, there's, uh, there was talk in 2016, and there are attempts to sort of impose the same uh, kind of binary, the same kind of moral sort of uh, weight to uh, this election, particularly when it comes to uh, consequences, policy consequences around an issue like abortion. I know you've spent uh, quite a bit of time talking uh, and thinking about uh, both uh, beginning of life uh, issues. You wrote a. You wrote your first book was on uh, some of those issues, but also in, in Vexed, you talk about as you said assisted suicide. Um, how um, how are these types of issues working their way through the American political system, and and how do you think conversations about these kinds of issues uh, could be improved? Yeah. Well, you know, it's um, it's interesting. Just as a comparison, you know, it's not n- nearly as uh, uh, it's not as political an issue um, in, in the UK. It's a sort of right. done yeah. done deal. So, um, looking at the issue was brought me to my attention in America, and it was you know partly having encountered it at, at Yale. I think that um, there needs to be thinking about a continue a continuum of how we think about respecting persons and how we think about protecting life um, across the board um, and whether that includes um, before um, birth or after birth. And so I think that that, when we start thinking about protecting life as a continuum, suddenly um, some of these, you know, medical ethical issues that have for decades now um, you know, divided the American public, start to be seen as social justice issues. And social justice issues like um, immigration, for example, um, or gun violence, start to to be, we start to see the links between those and what we want to say, uh, perhaps about um, what um, Catholics and uh, and, uh, many evangelicals would want to say um, about abortion. And so I think by having these issues in conversation with each other, we improve the nature of our dialogue about them and, and the nature of our thinking about them. And, and it plays into the broader themes of, of polarization and, and as you describe them, kind of package ethics. And I'm interested, did, did, you, did you study under, under James Hunter at, at UVA? I, I, I was a postdoc and we had many conversations. So I'd say he was yeah, sure. my main point of reference there. Yes. Sure, sure, sure. He, yeah, wasn't, yeah. he wasn't formally my doctoral supervisor, but, uh, okay, got but it. I was very influenced by his thinking and, and particularly the way that he structured Culture Wars, the book, because he looked at both sides um, as objectively as he could and saw yeah. the same trends on both sides of the spectrum, which is what I tried to do in Vexed. 
Yeah, yeah, that's ex- that's exactly right. And and I was reminded of his his work re- reading uh, through through your book. Uh, do you have ideas about, or I, I know you do, sh- you know, share your ideas about how individual voters can, you know, there are so many forces that are, um, you know, package ethics just, it doesn't just happen. It's beneficial to political actors who benefit from being able to graft on to uh, causes uh other other causes and other issues as an individual voter how can how can folks go about untangling some of these issues and and feeling like they can participate in political life in a way that is authentic to who who they are um, as opposed to you know buying into these these package ethics uh, uh, deals absolutely um, and that is the question um, I tell the story in the book of uh, of how it was that uh, Richard uh, President Nixon, you know, uh, somewhat cynically, uh, you know, went after, changed his position on abortion, and went after the Catholic vote, and and ensured that um, lots of um, New Deal Catholic Democrats uh, were transferred across uh, to become Republicans on this issue, which which did correspond also to um, the social liberalism of the Democratic Party in the 1960s. But, you know, you're absolutely right that it's um, serving forces beyond um, the individual voter, and it's how politicians do, do business and how um, they build coalitions. And, and so, in some ways, my book is an anti-political book in saying that I don't think um, the way that we go about making our decisions about what we do with our bodies and what we do with our wallets and how we think about those making their entrances and exits in the world um, should be dictated by these um, packages that have been put together by by people in power. And so there's something about um, looking for dissenters that it's a sort of call for dissent, the book. But in answer to your question, I think the individual voter um, has to, um, I think we need individual voters who are, who are going to shape and create pressure for there to be um, a shakeup of which issues go with which. Um, mm. And I think that that's where the, the energy needs to come, as well as, um, you know, decisions that um, individual voters need to make about the character of the men and women they want to represent them to be their leaders um, and considerations such as that. But I think it's really an energy to pull apart these package deals um, that needs to come from the citizenry um, and, you know, to, sh- to, shift, uh, to, sh- to shift the landscape that has, um, that has come to be the way that it is. Yeah, you know, I, I think about this these dynamics quite a bit. It's, it's been a, a big part of, of, of my work. You know, p- part of the difficulty is, is that, you know, it requires, I think, a particular kind of thinking, maybe even a particular kind of person to be able to sort of separate and draw back from some of these sort of imposed uh, package ethics deals or this sort of uh fabricated sort of 
political ideology. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, but then in order to influence the political system, it requires actually buying into institutions. Uh, and so that's, that's a, that seems to me to be the very crux of the problem when you get to the, the actual systems, which is the, the kinds of people who are, um, who are uh, dissatisfied with the current sort of structure of the political parties and the forces that they're currently uh, sort of forced to make um, uh, are, are often not the same kind of people who will invest in institutions and and do the do the messy work of organizing when you when you don't always get to have a hundred percent of your voice even if you're even if you're pushing back against packagetics to work with other people to to disrupt that system mm-hmm. you're gonna have to sort of um, you're going to have to deal with a certain level of disagreement. And, and that's just been a, a major problem. I, I point out in, in my book, uh, all of the uh, self-congratulatory language around political independence, uh, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. they're disrupting the system, that they're sh- showing the, the parties that they're not good enough. And, you know, I, I, I argue in my book that, that actually they're, they're checking out of the system that that in America we have the highest percentage of political independence in this country that we've ever had, and so you you there are more political independents in this country than there are Democrats or Republicans, mm-hmm. and so you'd think that if if that was such a a bold and effective approach that um that that, that we'd see some uh, change, but it seems like partisanship has only been entrenched. Uh, since we've seen the rise of independence. And so to talk to me about, do you think that there's actual hope for systemic change? Or are you sort of suggesting that the the real impetus is on individuals to sort of separate themselves from the system, even if it doesn't, you know, change, change the way things work? Yeah, I mean, that's a fantastic point And um, a great question. I mean, I think that there are institutional reforms that you know are pressing, like campaign or finance reform, that would um, transform some of the problems you're talking about. And um, Ezra Klein, you know, has written about this. Um, and I think that you know the representation of those independents, um, you know, would would change with um, with dealing with the outside influence of of certain players, you know, on the political system. I think that, um, you know, I've spent enough time with James Hunter to think about the institutions are important um, <laughs> and, I, and, uh, and that being faithfully present in institutions um, uh, as a religious people um, is a calling for many religious people. And so I, I'm not advocating the Benedict option um, in a sort of um, withdrawal from uh, public life. Yeah. Um, I, I And I also think that these questions in, in public discourse are up for grabs. And so I write in the book um, about the, the, the importance of rejecting the, 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 the easy solution of, you know, needing to disagree, um, of uh, learning to agree to disagree. And actually, um, that it is very important to, um, to, to conduct a spirit of, um, to conduct arguments in a, in a 
completely new spirit that um, honors the humanity of one's adversary. But those 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 huge issues, those culture war issues, um, are still there to be reasoned about um, and to be um, debated, and they're still up for grabs. And public opinion is changing um, as younger voters come through, and is changing on some of those big issues. And so, I don't think um, a retreat from the institutions would uh, from institutions necessarily means even if I was advocating it, a retreat from public discourse about the nature of the good and the nature and the um, resolution of some of these ethical quandaries that we face, um, you know, whether it be abortion or assisted suicide. Yeah. Um, That's a convoluted answer to a very clear and well put question. No, 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 it's very helpful. Um, you know, this is the Faith 2020 podcast, and, you know, I do think our, our conversation has a significant application uh, that we won't be able to get to entirely uh, in this episode. But I did want to ask you directly, sort of, how do you see some of the themes of Vexed and of your other work playing out in this upcoming presidential election in America? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, um, that this is a time for um, dissent um, against some of the package deal thinking that is, uh, you know, that is going to emerge um, once again during this this process of um, and uh, as this election takes place in such an astonishing moment in world history with um, with the, the current, um, you know, health crisis. I think that I call in the book for um, moral imagination, by which I mean a certain kind of empathy, not just for those we disagree with, um, but for those who are affected by the decisions that we make. So whether it be the worker who is um, working every hour of the day and um, is is unable through their manif- their manifold jobs to provide a sufficient income for their family, uh, moral imagination is required for the sort of capitalism that we want to see um, by by those who are in institutions, in business, um, and also in those who shape policy that affects the poorest workers. And what we need need to see is um, that moral imagination, which we've, I think, seen in this current health crisis, in the fact that there's a willingness to make sacrifices for the common good that is that has been seen in 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 for the most part the large majority's adherence to lockdown and if we can draw on that that strength and that residual um uh moral imagination as i call it or willingness to make sacrifices for the common good if we can draw on that which we've shown that we can do and we can apply those to some of these um, these crux moral issues at the heart of our politics. I think there is hope that um, the landscape can be shifted, and that we can um, reassess um, our options um, as we move forward into this presidential election. Yeah, that's really well said, and I think a, a good note to end our conversation on. James, thank you so much for joining. Would urge listeners to go out and, and get. Uh, or you don't even have to go out. You could order it from home. Don't go out, as a matter of fact. 
<laughs> stay home and order James Mumford's book, Vexed. Uh, it, James, how else could people learn more about your work and sort of stay up on, on, on what you're up to? Um, I have a website, um, jamesmumford.co.uk, where I post all of the articles that I write in the press. Um, and that would be the, the best way of, uh, of seeing um, the range of my work on, on other subjects as well. That's fantastic. James, thank you again for joining and uh, looking forward to staying in conversation. Thank you. Huge privilege to be on the program. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. Uh, I, I really like James. Appreciate his work and excited for what's to come from him. Uh, that's all we have this episode. Uh, such a pleasure being with you. This is Michael Weir for the Faith 2020 podcast. Uh, please stay safe, uh, stay well, take care of one another, and we'll talk to you soon. This episode was brought to you in part by the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast, an outreach dedicated to bringing joy, strength, intimacy, and purpose to couples seeking growth. Be sure to visit enneagramandmarriage.com to find your chemistry together again, or for the very first time.